解散します。仕事をすれば遺体を棺に収める仕事遺体って死んだ人のことですかなに観光の詳細関係結婚式場まあね<笑>But unfortunately, they weren't available for a couple of weeks.、Uh, so, in about a week and a half. Okay.、Uh, the, 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 the pain is not so much that it、uh, warranted an, an emergency visit. Yeah.、Uh, but it's still, you know, just the right amount to be annoying. Try not to eat on that side of your mouth. <laughs> exactly. So, I've been for a week now, I've been eating on, on one side of the mouth. Let's hope it. Doesn't require a root canal. I doubt it. I think it's more like gum, a gum. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure this is very fascinating to our listeners. <laughs> yeah.、Uh, but I don't, it doesn't、uh, look like it will be that kind of、uh, issue. But if it does, I don't know. We'll see what the dentists say. At the very least, it shouldn't stop you watching films. No, no, definitely not.、Uh, all right. So, in this episode of Heroic Purgatory, we'll be discussing the 2008. Oscar winner for best foreign language film, and that is the, 20, the Japanese film Departures. And well, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about that, but before we get to our discussion, we'll go over our usual segment where we talk about the media that we've consumed、uh, since last we spoke. So, Jason, what's been interesting about your life in terms of media consumption since last time we spoke? Well, no video games,、um, just been、uh, watching films. Um, the most impressive so far、uh, Mikey and Nikki by Elaine May. So that stars、um, John Cassavetes and Peter Falk. And、uh, it's a, essentially a tale of two hoodlums spending a night together in Philadelphia, one trying to evade mobsters after a hit, and the other, his childhood friend,、um, having to, to decide whether to betray him or not. So、um, John Cassavetes plays Nikki, the guy being hunted down. And Peter Falk is、uh, Mikey. And、um, it's like a really、uh, thrilling, stomach churning ride, as you never know how the night will turn out,、um, wh- whether 
Mikey will betray Nikki in the end. And um, we spend like the entire night with them. Um, and uh, as we watch them uh, interact with each other, we understand that they have long-standing connections that go back to childhood. And there's like equal amounts of um, affection and resentment. And um, both Peter Falk and John Cassavetes are just really good at showing the contrasting aspects of their characters because they're like really unlikable at times. They mistreat women, um, like attack a bus driver, but they can also be sympathetic And when they talk about their memories of childhood. And they're always super charismatic throughout it. And um, like the ending, when you decide, when you um, discover whether Nikki survives, it all comes down to how their relationship um, survives the night and like their personalities are constantly clashing so it's never certain and the ending is really heart-stopping stuff uh i watched the workhorse and the big mouth by keske yoshida and it's a story of two wannabe screenwriters who meet in a screenwriting class you've got michiko she's the workhorse she's 34 years old and she's written consistently since graduating from university and has consistently failed at like uh, competitions and um, submissions despite knowing all the technical aspects and then you've got the big mouth his name's tendo and like he's a loafer who spends more time daydreaming about fame than trying to achieve it and they're a chalk and cheese pair uh but a friendship gradually emerges uh with their sort of like personality clash comedy. And what I find really fascinating about the film, um, beyond the humour, is uh, how frank it is about the hardships of screenwriting, trying to break into the industry. Um, it shows it's full of competition from other writers and um, that like market dictates um, so many changes to a script that it's hard to keep up. And also there's exploitation as well. And I watched Solaris, which we talked about off air, uh, by Andrei Tarkovsky. For anyone who hasn't heard of it, it's a famous sci-fi film from 1970s. 1971. Uh, 71? I believe it's 71. It's 71, 72, but I think it's 71. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's... We can easily Google this in an instant, but let's not. Let's just say, say go with our uh, imperfect memories on this. Yeah, so um, psychologist goes to a space station orbiting a planet called Solaris and said psychologist investigates the death of one of three crew members on the station and experiences like weird mental manipulation and phenomena that the planet exerts on people as it brings out like uh, memories and desires. And uh, I watched it over two sessions. The first was an evening one where I fell asleep um, midway through the film and the second one was during the day um, where I finished it off. I liked the set design and the acting but I wasn't particularly moved by the story. Um, I like Tarkovsky's other films like Stalker and Nostalgia. I think I really needed to experience Solaris in one hit to get the full effect. Yeah. So, I mean, the, that's the thing with Tarkovsky. He doesn't make movies that affect you emotionally. Uh, you sort of have to, you, you can only, well, only. I mean, that's, that's subjective. There's nothing as subjective as emotions, but you, you sort of have to first understand it on an, intel, an in, intellectual level. Uh, and he also uses a lot of Catholic symbolism, which is uh, somewhat obscure, maybe to some people, to a lot of people, probably. Yeah, I must admit that uh, I did look up what was happening um, on Wikipedia afterwards, just to make sure like, I understood what was going on. And I did feel like um, on a second viewing, I'd be able to maybe get into it a bit more, having that knowledge with me. But there was like, this one really strange sequence where they're on the highways in Tokyo, it looked like. It is Tokyo, yes. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure why that was inserted in there. Um, I assume you've seen this. Yes. 
the story that I've heard, and this is somewhat apocryphal, is that Tarkovsky, because that was 1971 Soviet Union, and Tarkovsky wanted to shoot, to have like an image of futuristic city. And, um, and he asked permission to go to Tokyo, but he could not uh, get that trip approved for just a glancing shot of Tokyo. So he included as much as he could of that, of his shooting to Tokyo. Uh, and it's more pre- predominantly just a car ride, right? Yeah. Uh, in order to justify this, uh, getting permission from the Soviet, the censorship or whatever it was that controlled like Soviet, the media and Soviet Union, to justify him sending him and his crew to Tokyo for a certain, I don't know, a week or however it was. So he couldn't just include like a few glancing shots of the city just to, to, to show that they were in a futuristic city. So it just included that entire car ride. That's the story that I've read. It is somewhat apocryphal. Now, it wouldn't be entirely out of character for Tarkovsky to include long shots of something that is perhaps superfluous to the film. But that is a story that I've read about it. Well, yeah, it was such a bizarre sequence, just like 10 minutes of driving around highways. And, absolutely, uh, absolutely, yes, yes. So it is, it is uh, Tarkovsky is somewhat of a sacred cow in the cinephile world. And it took a lot of courage for me to come up and to, uh, I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious here, but it took a lot, I, I, I keep saying, I always say that it took a lot of courage of me to sort of say that I don't like Tarkovsky uh, because I, I just don't enjoy his films that much. Uh, there are two exceptions, and that is Solaris and Stalker. Hmm. Uh, I really like those movies. And uh, Nostalgia, I think I, I enjoyed that to a certain extent, but especially his earlier movies, which is actually a lot what a lot of people like, like Andrei Rublev and The Mirror. Hmm. Um, what else? I don't know. A bunch of others. I, I've seen most of what he's done. And I just, I just, I don't, I don't get it. It seems to me he's just the, the amount sort of, I don't, I don't necessarily find the value in, in sort of like the amount of obscurity that he inserts in the film. I think Solaris is a great film. It's not a perfect film, but I think it's a great film. I think Stalker is perhaps the culmination of his, of his career. And I think what's great about Solaris and Stalker is that he takes sort of two very famous Soviet science fiction books and gives them his own spin. And so in the, the sense that they are, you can appreciate, appreciate either the novels that they're based on or the films on a completely different basis. And they are indeed very, very different. Yeah, didn't the author of Solaris criticize um, Tarkovsky's film for not including enough philosophy? I'm not sure. I mean, I I know them. I might have read that and forgotten. I can't recall anything like that right now. But the author of uh, Solaris, um, Stanislav Lem, is sort of a well known for being a little bit of a curmudgeon. So he okay. he has he has. Well, I don't know if curmudgeon is the right sense, but you can find quotes from him criticizing just about anyone. Uh, he was especially very critical of American science fiction. With the exception of Philip K. Dick, Philip K. Dick, he'll like Philip K. Dick for some reason, although it makes no sense compared to some others, to what he praises about Philip K. Dick that other authors have done a lot better. And I think, I think, I think he was just a curmudgeon that he just liked criticizing without necessarily having all the information. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I know Tarkovsky um, wanted to make a different type of science fiction. Like, he himself criticized American science fiction for being too focused on technology. And uh, like he inserted so much. Are you talking about Tarkovsky or 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 Lem? Oh, Tarkovsky. Yeah. So here's my hot take: is that I don't think Tarkovsky cared about making science fiction or not. Hmm. To his mind, it was just an interesting idea that he 
that he saw the symbolist value on it. I don't think he cared about his movie really being science fiction or not. Okay. And so I, I don't like, even though Solaris and Stalker are very clearly science fiction movies, I think they exist in this sort of weird space that you might as you can easily call them not science fiction and you'd be somewhat right about it. Yeah. Uh, and especially both of them, uh, sci- so the books, the source material, both Solaris and uh, A Roadside Picnic, which is the movie, the book that Stalker is based on, they're very science fiction. There's no doubt about them. They're not. They don't. They don't have this doubt that his movies have. Yeah. Well, uh, the uh, other standout uh, was Claire's Knee by Eric Roma. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen that, but basically, it's about a guy who is about to get married. Um, he goes to his family's lakeside estates, uh, Anessi, and is challenged by a former lover to resist flirting with two teenage girls who are holidaying nearby. Um, I've seen other Roma films before, so I knew that the mood would be sort of sensual, slow, and very talky. And um, it's set in the world of the wealthy, um, and his characters are all on the surface like coquettish and um, really sharply intelligent. Uh, but the film gradually peels back their layers to reveal other aspects to them, like uh, discomfort with relatives, lovers, uh, or themselves. And the main character is the most exposed as like this really self-deluded loose guy. A creep, essentially. But it's like really fascinating watching Claire's Knee uh, because uh, it put me in mind of um, uh, Koji Fukada's film Au Revoir Let. Like he's one of a number of Japanese filmmakers who's uh, heavily inspired by French New Wave uh, films. And uh, I also watched uh, Departures for this podcast. And that was essentially my cultural consumption for the week. Oh, the last two weeks. Okay. Uh, okay. That, that was very nice. Uh, so for my uh, media consumption or cultural consumptions, I think maybe that's a better term for it. I uh, started reading a book called The Dying Earth by Jack Vance. And the only reason I'm reading this book, and it's sort of been on my list for a while, is because it's cited as a big sort of inspiration and source material for the original creation of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. And particularly the magic in it. So it's a, it's a fantasy book, although it's not very clearly fantasy. Uh, the magic in it is uh, a huge influence on the early versions or even the current versions of Dungeons and Dragons. And that it's very obvious reading the book. Um, uh, and it's, it's an interesting, I mean, it's a well sort of in the, in the fantasy world, in the fantasy and science fiction world, the speculative fiction world, it's a very well-known series. And Jack Vance is a, a well-known author. And this is more of a sort of a fix up, which is a very common back in the fifties where uh, it was more of a series of a interconnected short stories rather than a novel in itself. But it is sort of stories featuring the same characters and um, taking place in the same world. And it is interesting because this this book, it it's set in an in a sort of a, a presumably, or at least it's hinted that this, instead of being a fantasy, this is uh, presumably a very far future of Earth when the sun is close to the end of its life, uh, of the sun's life. Uh, and the world is post-apocalyptic and the characters, sort of the most powerful characters are magicians or spellcasters that cast these spells. But it is hinted that the spells are not really magic. They're just a, a very advanced technology that was created by humans a long time ago. But through a, a, a series of undescribed events, humanity has sort of regressed or has gone through some several apocalypses 
has regressed to a point where people don't no longer remember and sort of sort of like just stumble upon these technologies like magic runes and books that sort of like teach them uh, spells, but they're indeed just science that they just don't understand. Hmm. So the book exists in this sort of like very fine separating line between science fiction and uh, fantasy. And I find that very fascinating. I think the stories themselves are fun, but I, I nothing to uh, nothing to be amazed by. Uh, but, you know, the characters and the world building is interesting. Yeah. In addition to that, I've re I have been replaying uh, Beneath a Steel Sky. Uh, a oh. 1994 or 1995, some summer 90s uh, adventure game, uh, and it's uh, it's it's a, the, maybe one of the games that I played most frequently because it's a very short game and it's very funny. It's 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 honestly like watching a long movie. That's that's how that's how I view this game, and it is about. I might have even talked about it in the show before because it's something that comes up in conversation for me very often. But it's it's um it's this sort of cyberpunk future set in Australia of all places where uh, one character from who lives among the Aborigines in Australia, the Outback, kind of sneaks into one of these sort of city corporations and, and uh, in order to find his father, uh, or at least that's what it turns into the story. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting, there's a lot of humor, the music is great, and the, the game is just great. There's some interesting graphic and it is in it is done by Charles Cecil, who is, an, uh, who is the creator of Revolution Games, and it is in collaboration with um, one of the co-authors of Watchmen. What's his name? Mm. Dave Gibbons, uh, I think. Okay. Is that his name? Uh, I haven't read Watchmen in a long time. So Alan Moore was one and the other guy. So he, he, and the other guy was more of an artist. So Alan Moore was more in charge of the story and the other British guy. Yeah was more of in charge of the art. And that's the one that he's also sort of part, uh, was on the crew that wrote this game. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, something else that I've done is I watched Robocop and Starship Troopers, mostly because, uh, and sort of they're two, both Paul Verhoeven films, great films. There's, I'm sure you've seen them. There's no, no need to go on about them very long. Yeah. But I, I was reading about them recently and how, they're very relevant in today's world. And they partially are, they partially are. And so I wanted to revisit them. Uh, and they're films that I've seen many times, but they're always fun. Like that's the thing with Paul's, Paul Verhoeven's brief 10-year tenure, 15-year, some, something like that, tenure in, in Hollywood, where he made some really interesting movies, some, some really silly movies, but some really interesting movies as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and for some reason, his science fiction movies seem to make the most impact Basic Instinct, I've never been a fan of that movie, but it's obviously legendary in what it is. And uh, Showgirls, which I actually don't think I've seen. No, I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, it's that, that one's the one that he's kind of soft cited as his, uh, his worst film. And I think he's the only one who showed up to his Razzie ceremony for that film. Is it receiving something of a renaissance now? People are uh, unironically liking it? I, I've heard, I've read that, yes. And I am... Um, well, I mean, the thing is, it's, it's, you have to take those types of rumors with a grain of salt because the Phantom Menace uh, is, is kind of, you, you'll see people writing unironically praise about it. Uh, and uh, there's not really that much to praise about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this is from someone who is admittedly not a big Star Wars fan. And I will still say that the Phantom Menace is the worst of them all. Uh, but anyway... And I watched, not, not entirely, but part of The Farewell by, uh, I've seen it before, 
by but I wanted to rewatch it because it actually I thought it was somewhat uh, the today's film Departures reminded me a little bit of it, uh, and I think the director of that is uh, Lulu Wang, is that is that her name? It stars Aquafina. And I think it's based on a story by Aquafina, but I think the director is Lulu Wang. Or maybe it's the story by Lulu Wang. Okay. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the film, right? I mean, it was a big, uh, a few years ago. I think it won a bunch of awards or something. Oh, is it by the dying grandmother? Yes, that one. Yeah, I've heard of it. Uh, and it's all, I've also watched parts or rewatched, of course, just like The Farewell, because I had seen it before, uh, of Tokyo Sonata by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. We talked about this off air. Yeah, and it's uh, mostly because, I mean, mean, maybe it's relevant to today's film, maybe it's not, I'm not sure, but it's mostly because it came out the same year. And that was the the one I could think of that came out the same year. I said, oh, I'll revisit it. So I just watched parts of it. Yeah, I didn't didn't have that much time. I've been, just like last time, I've been extremely busy. Uh, In addition to being a a hit, to to being a continued hit hit wave here in the United States, which is always kind of, I don't know about everyone else, but it always kind of brings my productivity down because when I can't go outside in the day, it, it seems that the day becomes more and more suppressive in a sense. Mm, very laborious. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but with that said, that is my cultural consumption for since last time we spoke. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that's a, that was a good selection. Okay. So after that, we have our usual news segment. And there are two, I think, interesting news items that we've kind of jotted down here. And one is the selection for the 2022 Foreign Film Awards, which is, again, relevant to the discussion. And you sort of, or I forget if it was you or me, who sort of like saw this on Twitter about South Korea sending their nomination on Ready. And it was, of course unsurprisingly, decision to leave by Park Chan-wook. Yeah, you highlighted uh, news article um, deadline. And uh, essentially, uh, the article goes into detail about how um, decision to leave has been selected for the best international feature category at next year's Academy Awards. Well, um, it's no, it's, it's uh, South Korea submissions. It hasn't been selected yet. South Korea's submission, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so we don't know if we'll get if we'll get nominated. Yeah, this was originally at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, where Park Chan Wook won uh, the Best Director Prize, and it's had rave reviews, and it's already opened in Korea, and it's uh, soon going to be screened at the New York Film Festival. Uh, movie has the North American and UK rights for screening, uh, which I think it's coming out September or October, some some somewhere around that time. Yeah, and the article goes into detail uh, about the reasoning behind uh, South Korea submitting the film. And it's a combination of both art and commerce. The Korean Film Council is quoted as saying that it took into consideration workmanship and directing ability, the possibility of box office success in the North American market, and the promotion ability of overseas distributors. And they all agreed that the decision, or the selection committee agreed that decision to leave is the most appropriate film, and uh, they expect it to be well received. So high hopes there. Yes, I guess they're not going with the other one. What was the other big South Korean film that came? Uh, Broker and the Hunt. Broker, Broker, by starring Song Kang Ho, I think, right? Yeah, directed by Hirokazu Koreeda. Yes, so I guess they're not going with that one. Just judging from the descriptions and the trailers, I think decision to live is seems the more interesting film but Tirokazu Kored I guess he is a critical darling so 
yeah decision to leave has wild critics who've seen it and um like uh, looking forward to uh, a wider release uh come this autumn yeah so it is i mean i was surprised a little it is a little bit early for this so generally submissions don't happen until at least a few months later it's only august I, and I think I, I Googled it. I did a quick Google before the show. And the only three countries have done this so far. So it's only Ireland and Switzerland in addition to South Korea. Yeah. So I think the submissions happen much, much closer to awards. And I think the selections happen in January or the shortlist happens in January. And then we, we get, you know, the official nomination sometimes in February or something like that. Yeah. And another thing that I kind of found. So I think I also saw this on Twitter and I found it interesting is that the Film at Lincoln Center in New York, the same venue that does the New York Asian Film Festival, will be showing a newly 4K restoration of the Internal Affairs trilogy. And this will be happening on September 16th. And I am assuming, as, as it usually happens for these kinds of things, after that there will be some kind of home video re- release. Has Criterion the- picked this up? There might be a Criterion one, yes. Because I think part of the company that is showing this theatrically at the Lincoln Center is Janus Films. Mm. Uh, and they generally are the theatrical branch of Criterion. So it, it probably is going to be on Criterion. Okay. And I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure if it's just the first film or the entire trilogy. I think I read that it was in the, the entire trilogy. But it's at least the first film, which is also possibly the best one, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, um, just looking it up, Criterion is releasing the Infernal Affairs trilogy to Blu-ray. Um, okay. So it makes sense. I guess these theatrical ones, these theatrical new restorations are almost always followed by a, some, some, some kind of home video, home video release. So it was not surprising at all. And uh, like the Infernal Affairs trilogy, at least the first one is fantastic. Um, looks like film at Lincoln Center's going to be screening uh, one and two. Infernal Affairs, the first of the trilogy, will be shown on September 16th. New 4K yes. restoration. Just the first one. Oh, wait. Wait, what? wait, wait. Infernal Affairs 2. Yep. And Infernal Affairs 3. So all three are opening on September the entire 16th. trilogy. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I thought. So hopefully, hopefully they're not happening at the same time. So you could watch all three if you wanted to. <laughs> it's going, uh, it's a- going to be a marathon. Yeah, that makes sense. So again, if you're in the area, uh, in the New York area, you know, be sure to check this out. If not, then wait for the Criterion release, and uh, I'm sure this might be a worthy pick. I'm not someone who collects physical media, but uh, this is certainly, if I was, uh, this uh, f- f- Blu-ray, uh, Blu-ray has spoiled me. Like, I have a hard time watching things that are not in high, at least high definition. I don't necessarily yeah. care that much for 4K. 4K, I think, is perhaps an overkill, but definitely I am, I, I have a hard time watching something that is not in high definition. Yeah. And which is not DVD. So it's above DVD quality. And I remember, I remember there was a so long ago where 420p was great, right? <laughs> uh, 420p was like, great. I, there's no problem. That's why anybody would want more. And now it's like 420p or 480. Is it 420 or 480? I forget. It's uh, usually 360, isn't it? Uh, 480 and then 720. Yeah, 480, yes. Yeah. So, so now it's like, what? That's how can anybody have ever in the history of cinema watched something at that resolution? Uh, desperation, so, that's how. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I am spoiled. So definitely if you are someone who 
who would. And this might also be on the Criterion channel, the streaming service that is available only in the U.S., unfortunately. So, so this so might be that might be a place to check it out. But this would be probably the best version of this trilogy currently available. So definitely worth uh, worth uh, uh, checking it out at least. Mm-hmm. Okay. So after that, uh, that our new segment, we can jump in straight into our discussion. And just like I mentioned in the introduction, today's film is Departures, the twenty the two thousand eight. Uh, best foreign film winner at the Oscars. So, Jason, uh, why don't you tell us about a little bit about this film and give us a short plot summary of it? So, Departures is a 2008 drama from director Yojiro Tokita. Um, it was adapted from uh, the writer Kundo Koyama, loosely adapted Aoki Shinmon's autobiographical book Coffin Man, the Journal of a Buddhist Mortician, for the film script. Uh, the film was submitted to the 2009 Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film, and it won, making it the first Japanese film to win in the category. Um, by December 2009, the film had won 98 awards, and um, its uh, Japanese box office was like 6 billion yen, uh, which comes to about $60 million. So uh, the film follows Daigo Kobayashi, a cellist who loses his job at a small Tokyo orchestra. He and his wife, Mika, move back to his hometown in Sakata, Yamagata Prefecture, and he start life anew uh, in his childhood home, a cafe that his mother ran up until she died two years before the film starts. Um, it's a place of bitter memories for Daigo as it reminds him of his father who abandoned the family when he was just six years old. Daigo quickly applies for a job he finds in a newspaper, and uh, the copy says, Assisting Departures. He assumes it is for a travel agency. But it turns out it is an encoffinment business that prepares bodies for cremation. Initially reluctant to take on a role handling um, the dead, Daigo works with his elderly boss, Sasaki, and their secretary, Yuriko, and overcomes prejudice by taking part in different funeral services. And he gradually finds his true calling in life. So the cast consists of Masahiro Motoki as Daigo Kobayashi, Ryoko Hirosue as the wife, Mika, uh, Tsutomo Yamazaki as Sasaki, um, the guy who runs the encoffment business, Kimiko Yo as Yuriko, and uh, it has a score by Joe Hisaishi, uh, who's famous for Studio Ghibli and Takeshi Kitano films. So in terms of awards, uh, here's just a small selection. Uh, these are all from 2009. It won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. The Asian Film Critics Association Award for Best Actor, Best Picture, and Best Director. It swept the Japanese Academy Awards for Best Film, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, Director, Screenplay, Cinematography, Lighting, Editing, and Sound. At the Hong Kong Film Awards, it was uh, given Best Asian Film. At the Kinema Junpo Awards, it won Best Film, Actor, Director, and Screenplay. And at the Udin Far East Film Festival, it won the Audience Award. And uh, Yokohama Film Festival, it won Best Film Director, Supporting Actress for Kimiko Yo and Ryoko Hirosue, who shared the award. Another one that's, I think, noteworthy is it won the Best Actor at the Asian Film Awards, uh, which is like the, the, like a newly, we've talked about this, it's newly introduced awards for Asia, for the entire continent of Asia, although it's historically focused more on East Asia than any other parts. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it is. And, and it was, it was strangely only nominated 
for uh for that for that award no other uh can you can you guess which one or you maybe maybe I've told you this but can you guess which one won best picture on that on that year for the Asian Film Awards uh was it a Japanese film or a Hong Kong film yes it was a Japanese film uh still walking no i think that was 2006 wasn't it that's 2008 i think oh, okay okay i i don't i got my years mixed but no it's one that i just mentioned <laughs> earlier oh uh my memory's failing me yeah what was tokyo it son- tokyo sonata ah kyoshi kurosawa tokyo sonata okay yes so that won best uh best uh film that year and that also won best screenplay And I think Still Walking won Best Director for uh, Hirokazu Koreeda. I think that's what happened. Okay. Uh, yes. So Motoki won Best Actor, of course, in the Asian Film Awards. And I, I've talked before that I have a lot of respect for, uh, for the, those awards because I think their choices are always really good, even though they've historically, they've historically kind of been limited to, to East Asians. I think they kind of rectified that. Late uh, later on, but originally there were a lot of a, a lot focused on East Asia. I think their selections are excellent. Uh, they have, I think, they've exhibited very good judgment. And so yeah, so Hirokazu Koreeda won Best Director uh, that year. Uh, Best Actor went to, of course, Mokota Motoki. Sorry, uh, another uh, something something uh, another funny. The another uh, nominee nominee for that for that acting category was Song Kang Ho for The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. Which I think he deserved mm. it. He did a great job in that film. Mm. Uh, but another one who I'm not sure how I feel was Kenichi Matsuyama in Detroit Metal City. Oh, it's such a fun film. It is such a, it's such a silly film, but it is, and he is great in it too. Uh, he was also, I think he, he also got a bunch of acting nominations in everywhere, including the uh, Japanese Academy Awards that year. But I don't think he won any of them. Mm, that's a shame. Yes, but it's such a silly film. I'm not sure how I feel about the film, but he was so great in it. And it's, it's, I, I remember that film vividly. I've seen it many times because it's just such a funny, such a funny film. Um, yeah. Uh, also, I just wanted to, I'd like to clarify a few things. So you did mention, you did say that this was the very first Japanese film to win that category. Yes. Uh, that category. That is technically true. And we've talked about this. And I, I sort of, I'm, I'm surprised every time I hear this. Uh, but there are a few things that came close, and that was, for example, Akira Kurosawa's film Dersu Uzala won this category in 1975, and that was a Soviet-Japanese co-production, although that year it was submitted as a Soviet film. Okay. And uh, a Japanese film have won this category before it was official. Uh, in uh, the 50s, at least a couple of times, so one was for Gates of Heaven. Gates of Hell. Gates of Hell, sorry, yes. And then another one was for the first film in the Misashi Miyamoto trilogy, 1954, I believe. Okay. Um, however, those those don't don't count technically because they were before this category was established. They were honorary awards, although they were for best foreign language film. Yeah. But it wasn't it wasn't sort of as rigorous. There wasn't a nomination process and everything. It was just they picked a film out of who knows what what bag. <laughs> And I'm sure there was maybe political reason as well, because that was uh, like around the time where uh, the U.S. was strongly trying to sort of like re-establish Japanese, the Japanese government and Japanese economy. Uh, and that was part of that campaign to sort of like rebuild it, not reestablish it, but rebuild it. And maybe maybe there was some political motivation there, but but they are there nevertheless. So but officially for a Japanese submission, since the award was officially sort of created. 
Departures is the first one to have won it. Yeah. And Drive My Car the second. So, Jason, uh, why don't you tell us when uh, you first watched this film and, film and what did you think of it? I first watched it in 2010 and um, my initial thoughts were it's quiet, slow. I wasn't attracted to it then. Um, on a second viewing, I found a bit more depth. Um, enjoyed the acting, um, the atmosphere. And on a third viewing, um, I can see clearly how obviously schematic the story is. And um, there isn't too much depth to the story. But despite those criticisms, I... Feel I still feel like the film's really well made, um, and it uh, does what it sets out to do, which is like touch on all sorts of emotions while introducing the occupation of no kanshi or encoffinment or no can encoffinment. So your most recent rewatch, what was the, what uh, number rewatch was that? That was like the third rewatch. Okay, I see. So yeah, th- like in the first season of Heroic Purgatory, um, we talked about like gateway films. And um, I think Departures would be a great gateway film into Japanese cinema. I think so, yeah. I think it is easily accessible. And I think uh, we can talk about this later as well. But I do think that it was, uh, had like a decent theatrical run in the US. Was a decent... I, I folks, at the time, I feel like the infrastructure, the theatrical distribution of Asian films was not as well established or, or as well catered as it is now. So obviously it did not make Parasite money, but I think it was, it did reasonably wear for the limited distribution that it received at that time in the West. Yeah, it had a theatrical distribution and DVD, uh, courtesy of Arrow. It's always been a sort of strong Asian film uh, presence in cinemas, um, going back to the 2000s with Tartan cinema. And uh, like, I know like people in my own life um, were aware of Departures at the time, not just in my Japanese class, but also like extended family members who were married to Japanese people um, and just people in, like uh, I came into contact with who had an interest in foreign films, but weren't too well versed in Japanese films. So it was like uh, big on the news because of his Oscar win. And um, that helped like push the UK theatrical release. Absolutely. I think had this film been released later, like let's say around today time, I think this film had the potential to be as popular as Parasite. I don't know if you would agree with that statement, but it definitely has, I don't know that as popular, but I think it could, it could exist in the same category because it has that sort of like popular appeal aspect of it that I think it can definitely, it can definitely exist in that space. Yeah, it definitely has like uh, on top of like that japan um aura around it it's just it touches on universal emotions and it's so well made i know like roger ebert's uh review um he writes something like all the fundamentals are solid and it's true it's just like you can get into the story like foreshadowing is pretty obvious but um it's just so well constructed and uh you go along with it and uh it's well shot uh, beautiful music by Joe Hisaishi. Um, it's got an easy. It's it can easily appeal to a wide audience. Absolutely. Uh, so to to jump back to my first experience with this film. So this came out around two thousand eight, and that was around the time where I was sort of well into my Asian cinema fandom. And also, as as I've said before, I'm someone who follows the words uh, words very close. And they, back then, I followed them even more close than today. So I was aware of this film before it even got nominated because it was in a lot of prediction lists uh, of the film. So I I must have seen it either in 2000, late 2008 or early 2009. I forget 
exactly when, but I, I uh, watched because I, I knew that he would get nominated or I knew that it had a very good chance to get nominated. And perhaps I was aware that it made the shortlist because the shortlist is often published before the nominations, um, the nominations uh, are decided. So I, you know, and of course, I, as a big Asian cinema fan, this being the only Asian uh, film to be in the, in the nominate, in the nominees that year, I sort of sought it out right away. And I, I think I fell in love with the film immediately. So this was an instant like for me. And I remember watching it multiple times around that time. So in the span, so in the space between 2008 and 2010, so in that two year span, I've seen this film at least five or six times. And then I wow. did not watch it until I revisited it for the purposes of this episode. And I, 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 will not, I will not betray all my feelings about this film, but I definitely found more flaws in it now. And I would agree with you with your statement that I do not think this is as deep as I had originally thought. Uh, I think it is a, a great film. It is a very well-made film. It, it is a textbook great film. I don't know if you would agree with that statement. Yeah, it's uh, you can feel like it's sort of um, precision tooled filmmaking where every element has just been bought out, uh, given the, the right amount of weight. Um, there are, I like there aren't too many idiosyncrasies. Nothing to pull you out of it. It's a gentle ride. Takes you by the hand. Introduces you to just enough culture, and uh, sort of like drama that uh you can you kind of expect and uh it's just a satisfying experience because it's so well made yes and maybe the sentimentality i think maybe it's a tad too much it doesn't it doesn't verge on the at the point of korean melodrama it's not there at all but it is i think maybe the sentimentality the sentimentalism of the film i think maybe it's too much at times although it is effective then that's that's why the film i think has a lot of uh room for popular appeal uh, but I was sort of while watching it this time, and I, I I liked it. I still liked it. I think I think the film this time, as opposed to the previous time, I think the film takes a bit to to sort of like it took me a bit. So the first maybe twenty to thirty minutes, I was it was a slow start for me. And then when it, when they get to that first ceremony on the thirty five minute mark or somewhere around the time, I think that's where the film really starts get going. This is where I really saw what I had originally liked about the film. Uh, but I tried to sort of like remember back and examine my feelings as to why that film had appealed to me so much. And I think I think subconsciously it wasn't so much the film itself as it, as it was that for the first time in my lifetime, I was seeing an appreciation of Japanese cinema from the mainstream. And I think that subconsciously sort of made me like the film a bit more than I would have liked it if I sort of was judge, judging it on the face value. And that's not to say that it is not a good film. We'll talk about more of that in detail. But I'm saying, I think the fact that I was seeing a, a cinema that I enjoyed very much at the time, sub Japanese cinema, sort of have, had it, having fallen out. So I'm, you know, I grew up, you know, I, I became a cinephile in the 2000s. And at that time, I felt like Japanese cinema had sort of fallen off the mainstream. And when I say mainstream, I mostly mean the mainstream critical community, not sort of like the mainstream as in sort of popular appeal, because foreign cinema obviously is not going to have a, po a popular peer in the West where sort of I, where I follow and exists and all that. But, you know, it was sort of in the critical community, Japanese cinema was very big from the 50s all the way to the 80s and maybe even 90s, culminating with sort of Kurosawa getting that honorary, honorary degree. When did he get it? In 1990, I think? I'm not sure. 
I think 1990s, he got that honorary Academy Award degree. And that's, I think, I think that's sort of like the, the culmination of appreciation of Japan from the Western critical community. And I think it also shows that a lot of Kurosawa's latter films, later films from Ron all the way to his final films that he made in the early 90s had American funding in them. One of them even had Richard Gere. And uh, Martin Scorsese as a cameo, yeah. as uh, Vincent van Gogh. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Uh, but sort of that was, and then after that, in the 90s, so it feels to me that Jap- Japanese cinema sort of fell outside of the mainstream and sort of became more niche. So that was what was niche was the explosion of anime, which is great. I'm not, I'm not trying to talk down on anime, but it is sort of a, a, for a long time, anime was outside the mainstream, was this fringe fandom, right? That sort of, a, that yeah. was very popular in a very niche part of Western viewers, but it was not necessarily viewed as a, as mainstream from the mainstream critical community. And the other part was J-horror, which again was not very influential, uh, especially in American horror, but it was also not part of the mainstream. And whereas, and the departures was the first one that I saw as a return to mainstream, as I said, okay, this is not only a great film, a popular film that has potential for popular opinion, but it is nominated and then it finally wins. That is great. That is a return to form for Japanese cinema. And I'm being, I'm, I'm, I'm spending way too much time psychoanalyzing my own choice from when I was a teenager. But I, I think that's what uh, attracted me to this movie so much. And I think now that that's gone, now that I don't have that sort of yearning for or, or desire to see Japan necessarily be, I don't care as much. I can maybe step back and judge this film a little bit more objectively. I can see what it is great about it, but maybe also what it is not so great about it. Uh, and we can talk about all those now. And I, one thing that I kind of found interesting that I didn't know that I just read this time is that the main actor, Motoko, or what's his name? Uh, Masahiro Motoki. He had a great hand in actually making this film happen. I don't know if you read about that. Yeah, um, on the Wikipedia page, uh, essentially he went to India and he saw a funeral at uh, at River Ganges, and um, like seeing the funeral, uh, contrasting that with the bustle, hustle, and bustle of the crowd around it, made him um, contemplate uh, life and death, and he started researching um, the subject when he uh, went back to Japan, and he even wrote a book about it. And um, while he was researching, which I doubt has been translated. It would be great if, if that book had been translated into English to maybe check it out, but I, I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't even think in Coffinments, uh, the, the, the source, source story uh, has Man. been translated. Yeah, Coffin Man. Like he encountered Coffin Man and uh, it was like a 10 year journey to try and get this film made, slowly recruiting like uh, various people talking to people in studios and finding out that they weren't too um, enthusiastic about uh, releasing a film about death and so forth. And like Masahiro Motoki's a, a big figure in Japan because he was like um, a pop star uh, before he became a film star in the like 1980s, 1989 with um, Sumo Do, Sumo Don't and um, Fancy Dance. Uh, which are two really great films. Uh, I hope we uh, can talk about them sometime in the future. But um, yeah, it, he's used his star power to try and get this film made, uh, Departures made. Yeah. 
Which is I, it's a bit odd to me because, of course, in the West, in Hollywood, you hear a lot about actors with personal projects that they try to get made. I mean, it's a very common thing, right? But I, I'm not, I don't know if this is common in Japan. Maybe you could sort of elaborate on that. To what extent is this common where stars have personal projects that they pursue as fervently as uh, Motoki pursued this one? I saw one for me, one for them sort of thing. Yeah, I don't think it's as common uh, as it is in the West. So this, uh, like Motoki's um, mission uh, to get this made, really stands out. Yeah, so that, yeah, that's why it took, it, it took me it took me by surprise a little bit. And I also I have news for you: Coffin Man, the Journal of a Buddhist Mortician, is available in English. Yeah. You can uh, uh, buy it on Amazon. Funnily enough, um, uh, apparently the author died last weekend. Oh, interesting. Okay, I and guess maybe his, that should have been in our news section. <laughs> yeah, his son performed the encoffinment ceremony on him. Interesting. And also about this book, it was released in, it was translated in 2002. So I guess it was popular or significant enough before the movie came out. Because you can sort of see uh, being translated as a result of the popularity of the movie. But no, this was... Uh, I don't know if it's in print anymore. You can probably only find used copies or copies that are just left uh, as stock. But it was at one point translated. Internet archive, maybe? Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you could find it if you wanted to. There's got to be used copies. But it is translated and it was translated. You know, it's been available for quite some time. Well, yeah, this is uh, like reading the Wikipedia article. It's like uh, we talked about commodity authors earlier in the show during um, cultural consumption. Apparently, um, the author of um, Coffin Man was uh, uh, unhappy with the film because it ditched a lot of the religious uh, elements to, uh, from his book, and um, the writer inserted sort of like the melodrama- uh, melodramatic um, s- subplot of um, Daigo um, getting. Uh, rediscovering uh, his father, essentially. Yeah, and I don't know if he was... Uh, I, in my opinion, that was a, a right choice to sort of like... I think without that personal touch, just being sort of a... It would have been a very dry movie. Uh, even Despite the emotional charge that sort of like these ceremonies have on like sort of like some of the extras, basically. There's a lot of extras crying in this movie. Yeah. Well, it's the culmination of his character arc, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. But do you think, do you know anything about whether that was the actors, so Motokis, who was sort of like in charge of this project, or whether it was that the directors? And this was, I think, one of those films where the director was just a director for hire. I don't think he contributed as much to this as perhaps like the screenwriter or Motoki himself. I think, uh, yeah, um, I'm not too sure about that. I know like Motoki, um, really into method acting, did a lot of research on Nokan and um, practiced yes, a lot. Yes, he did his... a lot of research on that and he learned to play the cello. Yeah, and uh, the writer Kundo Kiyama, uh, he's, got, he's a uh, veteran of TV shows. Uh, I'm not sure, but it seems like over the course of 10 years, like various people had a role in shaping the story. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of actors, so the other sort of really impressive actor in this was Tsutomu Yamazaki, who played the older master of uh, the ceremony. I forget his name in the film. Uh, Sasaki. Sasaki. Do you, rec- do you remember? Do you recognize him? Uh, Tampopo. Yes. He's a very famous actor, right? He's been in a ton of movies, but he was in a movie that we discussed recently. Uh, oh, blimey. He was in High and Low. 
Oh yeah, he was the doctor. Yes, yes, yes. He was the bad guy. Yes, in High and Low. So that was that was just amazing. He's been in a lot of Kurosawa films. He was he's sort of like a frequent collaborator of Kurosawa, and he's he's a vet. I mean, he's been at everything. He's been so many well. He's collaborated with so many directors, and uh, he's still working to this day. Yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, maybe this jump. Again, I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but I was disappointing that he didn't win as many awards as as Motoki acting awards because I enjoyed his performance a lot more. And I, I guess, I mean, I guess we could talk about what did you think of the acting in this film? Uh, I, I, some of the acting is really broad, um, but uh, but generally speaking, it's like uh, enjoyable. I know, like Masahiro Motoki's got great. Uh, comedic chops to him based on sumo do sumo don't and um, uh, fancy dance and he can also carry the emotional scenes as well yes but his acting was sort of recognized in almost every award ceremony right there was the Asian Film Awards and the Japanese Academy Awards and a bunch of festivals etc where he was nominated and I find I found his acting good effective but I don't know that I found it that amazing especially there are a few scenes where he does really goofy facial expressions that I just feel so completely out of step with the tone of the movie. It's like the orchestra's breaking up. Yeah, and he's exactly. Got that, huh? <laughs> yeah, that seemed I forgot. I like I, that was and that's so early in the film when I like put it on and realized, wait, is this the movie? Am I watching the same film <laughs> that I remember? Because I rem- when you remember, especially you know, like I said, last time I watched this film was two thousand ten. I remember this is a very emotionally charged movie. And I, I do remember that it had some comedic chops, but I, I remember the comedic aspects more as of, you know, that video that they shoot. I thought that was yeah. great comedy. Uh, or, or, you know, like the awkwardness or whatever, or the, the one where the, he discovers the penis out inside the robe. Like, those yeah. are great comedic moments. But to start the movie with like, oh, the orchestra is breaking up. What? And he's just, he's making a Three Stooges facial expression, which is, and he does that a few times in the film. And it feels so, so weird. Like, what, who made that choice for him? That was probably the biggest misstep in the film. Like, everything else is well done. But that one stands out, which is why we both um, highlighted it. Whereas I think Yamazaki was, I mean, of course, at best he could have gotten a supporting role. I don't know if he did get a supporting role award, at least at the Academy, uh, at the Japanese Academy Awards. It's the best supporting actor. Yeah, so he did. Well, I, I found it quite funny that um, while Masahiro Motoki was doing all of this intense preparation, Yamazaki was like, I'm not going to bother going to a no-can ceremony. I'll just show up to the shoot. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's there's like you know that's sort of like a lot of people have spoken against method, mm. and method acting is not does not is is too much work for too little benefit. And I I actually kind of happen to agree with that. If I ever was a director, which I I'm not obviously I'm not even close, but I would stay away from method actors. I don't think it's worth it. I mm. don't know that you I think there are plenty of actors, great actors, who achieve just as good of results without going through that hassle of just pissing off everybody around them to be method like daniel day lewis in my left foot like that's the most extreme example that i've read i don't know if you've seen that movie uh i like like it was put on in high school to keep everybody quiet <laughs> i think jared leto and shia labeouf have given it a bad rap <laughs> yeah yeah uh anyway uh so going back to this so yes so uh, like i said i like i think what you said this was a well done film and that goes to the acting i just don't think that it was 
you know, amazing. If I'm sort of to be crass about it, it's it didn't impress me that much. And maybe maybe those very few goofy moments kind of colored the rest of him. But when he like he's he is great in the scene in the end where he is finally performing the ceremony on his father. Yeah. But also the film, that part, by that point, the film is so sentimentally charged that you're not sure if it's the acting or if it's everything else, the music, the situation, sort of like the others crying or anything. Or even the moment when he discovers that his father is in the next village over and like he's furious. And it's that moment of furious just like really shakes the film. Uh, what did you think of uh, his wife? Ryoko Hirasue. So she's like... um teenage star, singer, actress, partly down to characterization, um, partly down, uh, like she's, she plays the character broadly. She hasn't got much to do really. She's like, most of the characters are in service to Daigo's growth in the end. I, I, I would agree with that. I think she does a good enough job with what she's given, but she's really not given that much. Yeah. She's essentially the, the loyal wife, um, she, you can hear her in the background, Oishiso, and uh, like she's pleased at getting different food and stuff. And then a little bit of resistance when like um, all the cultural taboos come up, and um, then she falls in line essentially. Yeah. So th- that, especially with her character, I had a lot of problems in the beginning. Uh, mostly, mostly in the beginning of the film. Like I said, the film really picks up w- like around the thirty to forty minute mark when that first when he witnesses the first full ceremony. I think that's what really gets like it's the becomes the greatest part where it's like the really most effective part of the movie. In the beginning, there were a lot of little things that I kind of bothered me. For instance, uh, with uh, in the beginning, he is uh, in the orchestra, presumably not making that much and he gets fired of it from it. And we also uh, not to get fired, but the orchestra gets dissolved. And then we found out that he spent like 18 million yen on a cello. Yeah. Which is, it seems ridiculous, right? Like, I looked this up. I, I specifically looked this up. So in 2008, eight, 18 million yen would have been around $150,000. That's even more if you, now, if you include inflation. But I was, I, I started looking up what is a good professional cello cost. Like, not, not a practice cello, not a cheaper cello. A cello that can be used by professionals, professional grade cello, and you can get one for as low as twenty thousand uh, dollars. And you can you, you, the higher end are are at fifty thousand dollars, and that's with today's prices. So while it is, and this is a rabbit hole that is maybe useless, but it, it's the kind of thing that bothers you, right? Like it's you can definitely find cellos that are one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and even more, but you don't need that. And someone who is presumably not really making that much money, it seems to me like why would he go? into that debt to, to, to get an 18 million yen cello or $150,000 cello. Well, yeah, it's like, broad, it's all broadly just to get him like this big loss. He has to go back to his hometown. You know, he's, he's part of an orchestra. He should know uh, how much churn there is in the job, how, how much turnover there is. And exactly. he, like, he gives up too easily, essentially. Yes, and and that's the thing, and of course, I I get that this is part not only to, to set up to sort of set up the the drama for later, but it's also to get us from point A to point B. And another one in the same category, which bothered me a little bit more, is how passive his wife is in that beginning portion of the film, where they're still in Tokyo, right? Yeah, she's an IT professional; she can support them. And then it's kind of like, yeah, we'll just go from 
Tokyo to a rural city. I'm just going to transplant everything. Exactly. Not only that, but you can sort of you can sort of assume with she is probably the main provider in that household, right? And there's only two of them. They don't have children, but that's that seems to me, especially for a Japanese film, that seems to me a significant a significant point to just gloss over. And then her not reacting to him losing his job, to him having spent 18 million yen on a on a cello that he doesn't even need. I don't know why he would do that. And she just takes it all like it's, yeah, you can see her being a little bit, you know, disappointed, but then he's like, yeah, whatever. And then she's like, you know what? Let's completely uproot our, our life and give up everything that is stable about our sort of income and move into this village where I'll have no job and you have no skills because all, all you've done is play cello for like 30 years. Yeah, it's just a perfunctory setup to get them from point A to point B and just to have a massive culture clash. But I would I would totally be happy for like her to look after me while I work in a convenience store. Like <laughs> Yeah. Even I I mean I'm not saying I'm not saying yes. So those things that I think perhaps last the last time where I watched this film I was able to look over this time bothered me a little bit much because again it is. I think it's all result of kind of not paying attention to the female characters, which is yeah. sadly a thing in Japan. Not only in Japanese cinema, but since we are talking about Japanese cinema, it is a thing about Japanese cinema where the wife is mostly a sort of a foil for whatever character arc uh, the main character goes through. Well, it's, it's like I said earlier that she's not given enough, given enough to work with. She just presents uh, an obstacle and then she falls back in line. Yes. Uh, yeah, so presumably the main provider. She could have, I think we, we, we could have had the same film if she, if any, maybe even a, a better film, if she gets mad for him and then they still do it, you know? Um, yeah. Maybe she can still work as an IT developer online. I mean, this 2008. It was not unheard of at the time. Yeah. Uh, a website designer or whatever in from the village. So I don't know. And, you know, they could have a little argument and then their argument later about the his job, which he also keeps secret from her, maybe could have had a little bit more weight because it's not the first time that he is... Yeah, that would have been a perfect build-up. I've sacrificed my life in Tokyo for you and you're still not being straight with me. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it does. And it, I like that's what end, ends up happening. That's what she says. But it seems a little bit unfair to her character that she's made to kind of swallow it all and only then kind of explode. I think they do it to emphasize the shame of this profession, the cultural yeah. sort of shame. So people like, I think as if they're saying Japanese people are willing to tolerate anything, but not this, Yeah, uh, which is, uh, which I think was what the, and I can sort of see why I can see why they would go that, but I think it is uh, from a, from a, a the story point, I can see it why, but I think it is a great disservice to that character for for them having to sort of go that route. I think like uh, other films from the same time period, which do a much better job at fleshing out all the side characters, like we've talked about Tokyo Sonata. That, that, um, I mean, that's why I brought it up. Yep. It, it doesn't deal with the same subject matter, so they're not necessarily like a double feature quality, but it is a film that I think sort of deals with, you know, life, and sort of like, you know, life in Tokyo, like the social norms and all that. But yeah. it does it in a way that it kind of, it is more nuanced. It is more perhaps understated, doesn't have the same emotional impact. 
but it it is able to sort of like see life from all aspects of a family. Yeah, uh, another well, we're, well, talking about family, still walking, which you mentioned earlier, which I I have not seen. Oh, okay. Or if, right. or if I have seen, I don't remember because so, uh, I I mentioned this before. Koreeda's films kind of blend together in my mind, so I don't think I've seen. But if I have, then maybe if you summarize the plot quickly, maybe I have. Is it that they go to the father's country house in the country? Uh, yeah. Well, they go to the father's house at the seaside. Um, the okay. oldest son I have seen it. Died, and the younger son uh, is not taking over the medical practice. I have seen it. I have seen it. But yeah. yeah, and he's married. Uh, oh, he's going to marry a divorcee. But yeah, and um, another film called All Around Us, which is like two hours, 30 minutes, but like it's all about people, people, people. There's so much depth to the characters. And the women, the female characters in each of these films, given so much to, uh, so much depth. So, so, yeah, exactly. So this is done. It feels like the, the character depth is sacrificed for maybe bringing up the sentimental the sentimentalism that originates from the sort of that cultural taboo that exists in sort of like society which is i don't know maybe you're more familiar with japanese culture uh, I'm, i am completely on board with this being a thing i'm just not convinced that it is as much of a thing in modern times i read somewhere that most encouragement happens in hospitals nowadays like something like 90% or something yeah, so um, I've talked to uh, some friends, uh, a girlfriend about it, and it's kind of like uh, Departures was an eye-opener for many in Japan uh, because most people die in hospitals and encofferment uh, is usually handled by funeral services or the hospitals. Um, so no can could be subcontractors to funeral parlors or the funeral parlors might do it themselves. What I'm saying is those who do it, they're not necessarily viewed as untouchables like in this film. Yeah, They're just people um, with jobs, right? Or is is that still is that a thing? It, well, like death is like people. Uh, it's got the history of like uh, prejudice um, due to Shinto tradition, uh, like uh, anything connected to death, or uh, is seen as unlucky or as an unhappy thing. Uh, it's an impurity that people want to avoid uh, catching, essentially. And so, uh, like, the prejudice that Daigo encounters is, like, uh, he's working with dead bodies. Nobody wants to be near him, including his wife, Mika, uh, because he's as close to death as it gets. And this sort of thing also affects the Bunraku people who are discriminated against, you know. But it also covers things like childbirth and menstruation and um, leather working, things like that. Uh, I don't think it's as big a thing now as it used to be in the past, but there's still discrimination against the uh, Bunraku people. I mean, I can, I can imagine there's, you know, some nurse or hospital staff that deal with death as much as the characters in the film. And I find it hard to believe that they would be discriminated against. Oh, you're a nurse. Don't touch me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just... But like, like the, no, the whole no-can thing is a business venture now and uh, more people are aware of it. I can see it maybe in more rural areas where perhaps people are more close-knit together and there's that sort of culture is perhaps a little bit more uh, uh, susceptible to that kind of behavior. Yeah, I, it's probably not as bad as it used to be in the past. But for dramatic purposes, you know, um, it's perfect for the film. But that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. And that's right. And it didn't bother me for two things. And I mentioned at the beginning that I saw a film, The Farewell, um, and I, uh, that film was widely successful. It was received very well, but I never liked it because it, the entire premise 
rests in this Chinese cultural tradition that people don't tell their parents or their family members about a terminal disease. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the entire dramatic tension, the entire dramatic core of that film is based on that one. So they, as the grandmother gets lung cancer and they decide, the family decides not to tell her. And there's only one, the young daughter who thinks that's wrong and they should tell her. Um, and I think similar to, to departures, there, there's a, there is a requirement that you sort of like the audience identifies with that struggle, that cultural struggle, which is foreign to them because both sort of like this taboo against people who deal with death, which is for a large part not present in the United States, or this cultural uh, norm to not tell the elderly about a terminal disease and just let them die unexpectedly, which is, that's also very odd to Western. So the film needs to, uh, there's a legal term called laying foundation, which is to... Hmm. Uh, to describe the proper content, the proper relevance. So the film needs to lay the foundation to make it to make that point, so the audience can emphasize, can can identify with a dramatic tension, so they can so they buy into it. And I don't think the farewell does that very well. Whereas I think the uh, the departures does it very well by not really talking about it that much. We see it in action. What is the effect that Daigo experiences? We don't need, in the farewell, they talk about it. They say, oh, that's what we do. It's in China, so and so and so. And it's, it feels so very, very dry. Whereas in, in Departures, we see it in stages, right? And first we see that he is embarrassed to tell his wife. And it's not, and it's not even central. So that part is not central. It is, his character is the central point of the film. And it is you know, sort of like the closure that he's able to bring to the families, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And and then we sort of gradually we sort of see more of the effects without there's no point that they talk about. They say, oh, because I am such and such, I will experience such and such. No, we see his friend saying, hey, get a proper job. Why don't you get a proper job? And then we see his wife have that big fight uh, and so on. And so that is done so well that you can immediately, even though it is foreign, that cultural idiosyncrasy is foreign to you, you can still sort of get it because you are experiencing through the characters relationships and through their reactions to each other rather than being explained to you or any other way which could have been completely wrong and one I, one thing that i really like about this movie despite the many flaws that i sort of saw uh, in this rewatch was how little exposition is given in the ceremonies you get so much about the families without there's a, a lesser film would have had dialogues between people about to give you more background about the people the basically extras that they have in the various ceremonies that are depicted in the film. But they don't do that. It's all through these, the process. While he is performing the ceremony, we see their reactions. We see little lines of dialogue thrown uh, here. And there are even actions like him finding the penis. So you get exactly what that family is all about. Uh, or, you know, the one in the montage where they kiss the, the, uh, presumably the patriarch of the family and they live lipstick shapes on his forehead and his bald head or something yeah or the girl so, who dies in a biker accident exactly so it's all done so so well and i think what you said in the beginning that is very well done it is precision a precision job it's yeah. surgical precision to how everything is depicted and that's the ceremonies especially are the highlight of this film and i think it's part of the reason why it's so popular but uh also uh Around everything, there's like constant nods to death, where there's like visual motifs or um, just like characters having a conversation about like uh, 
booze. Like you've got obviously cherry blossoms, but you've also got Mika uh, has that squid uh, at the very beginning and they toss it back into the river instead of eating it uh, because they can't bear to kill it. Um, and Sasaki has that conversation um, about uh, like how living things have to consume other living things to live. Uh, um, and it's kind of like naturalizing death. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Did you think though that was a little bit over the top? Like some of the like when like they look at the coffins and say, "Well, you know, they all burn the same." No, I, I, I like, I think some the film's playing some things as broad as possible to uh, appeal to as many people as possible. So its message is coming through loud and clear. I thought it was fine. Yeah, uh, but essentially everything's just designed to get. Um, uh, for Matoki's character arc, essentially, and to introduce the Nokan. Exactly. And I think that that's um that's the film's biggest strength and like we talked about, maybe the film's biggest weakness, because through because of that, because it's so focused, everything is filtered through Motoki's or uh Daigu's point of view that perhaps the rest of the characters are left. Suffer because of it. Yes. And I, I still maintain that the Yamazaki's character, uh, I think he is great. Um, the, the Mika, the the one that plays his assistant, is that her name? So Kimiko Yo, she plays Yuriko. Yes, I I think she's also a little bit too broad, uh, like relatively unremarkable, unremarkable, relatively stereotypical. They they have that scene where she has a son. Well, yeah, she's that time bomb. Exactly, it's all in the service of making making uh, Daigo have like a final epiphany. Yeah. Which is, I, I, again, I, it's a terrible way to sort of waste characters, right? Yeah. Yeah, just to go back to Yamazaki, like, uh, his performance is so fantastic. Like, he's got this lived-in expression, he's calm, but he's also um, really laid back. The way he throws um, uh, Daigo's uh, resume, his CV, onto the table, he's just like, oh, hi, are you? That's just such a great character moment that Daigo's taken aback by how flippant, like, his stuff's been handled. I think there's a couple of times in the film where they reference his age, right? And uh, where they, like, for example, when he's sleeping on the couch, say, oh, he's old now. He's getting tired very easily. Yeah. And so you get the sense that he's looking for his successor, right? And Daigo is going to be that successor. I don't, parts of me think that maybe the film should have ended with that, with Daigo finally performing the ceremony on Yamazaki. Yamazaki, the new father figure. <laughs> the new father figure, exactly. Uh, which seems more pointed, but again, that could have probably required a lot more interactions between them or whatever. Um, I don't know, but it seems it seems like the film is kind of edging that way, but then no, it becomes about his real father. Yeah, and it does end on a very beautiful moment where it takes the stone the father has and passes it to me. Yeah. But, but again... Did you buy that? Like, for example, when <laughs> he would when, keep no, a stone with him. <laughs> no, no, uh, that's fa- that's very that was a very beautiful moment. I agree with you. No, I mean the the reason why the father couldn't come back is sort of mirrored in the Eureka's reason why she couldn't come back. And she says, "Well, I left my son. I ignored his little hands, or whatever she says." And he says, "Why don't you go back?" And she says, "No, nah, I can't." Do you? What do you mean you can't? You can't. Go back, apologize. Like, it's, it seems to me, I get it. There's this sort of sense of shame that is in Japanese culture that is perhaps far greater. Although I do, even, I'm not a parent, I'm not a woman, I'm not a mother, none of those. And I can still understand the shame that a mother would feel for such an action. But I, I still don't think that 
any shame, even as much as uh, Japanese shame might be amplified compared to Western shame or whatever, it's still, that's no reason to not be able to go back. And that doesn't explain why his father didn't go back. He could have gone back. It seems to me like a wasted, a wasted opportunity. Yeah, it, there are plenty of Japanese films where the mother or the father comes back into the lives of the child. Um, uh, like this is essentially all for Daigo's character growth, for him to overcome. Yeah, but, but it, it's uh, that's me exactly. But that's also meant to be as a uh, well. He finally came to terms and understands maybe why his father didn't come back, but he still loved him. Well, may I don't know. Maybe that's a cop out a little bit. No, I, 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 like, I, I thought it would have been much more interesting if he would have held on to his resentment, which is probably what would have happened in real life. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Uh, another, maybe, maybe perhaps a little less severe, but is how his wife comes around after she sees him perform the first ceremony where she's extremely prejudicial and she comes back after she finds out that she's pregnant. And she comes out, it's somewhat, actually somewhat coy, and perhaps maybe like a real from a writing perspective, maybe that's kind of like the, the, the very like hint of non-broad personality that they give her, something, something that is perhaps a little bit more specific for her, that she's trying to be very manipulative. She's coming back with the intense, like with a feeling that, oh, now I'll use this as a way to convince him to, to drop that profession and find out and find a more decent job. Yeah. But, but then she sees the first ceremony for someone that she knew, the lady on the bathhouse, in the bathhouse. Yeah. As soon as she's introduced, death flags. Yeah. Uh, maybe uh, that's also a little bit maybe too convenient. But again, it works. I'm not saying it doesn't work. But I think if you were to be 100% realistic, people don't let go of their prejudices that easily. Yeah. But it's fine. Like, I, again, I'm just mentioning that as a minor pet peeve. It's not. It wor- I think it works in the film because you cannot have a film where the wife was going to keep that resentment forever. It has to. You have to, for this kind of film, you have to find a way to reconcile them. And as, as any way goes, I think that was a perfectly fine way to, to bring them back together and perhaps have the wife come around and even maybe appreciate what her husband does even, even to a greater extent. And she becomes generic again, which is fine, I guess. Beautiful symmetry. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, but you're right. But for his father, I think more realistically, he would have kept that resentment. And it would actually be an interesting, although for the tone that the film goes for, Maybe wouldn't fit so much. I don't. I don't know what to say. Maybe it would. Maybe it wouldn't. Hard to say. Well, I, yeah. They've. This has been sort of um, made, shaped. Um, at all the edges have been shaved off. Uh, it's probably the most palatable film about uh, this subject matter that you could find. Uh, it's also, I also find it a little bit funny and interesting that he when he's it, when he has, his wife leaves him. We have no good sense of how long she's left for but he's made no effort to get her back right at least not effort that we see he's so happy when she finally returns <laughs> but not even we don't even see him making a phone call or being refused a phone call by his wife trying to like the like the cliche scene of him calling his wife and going to voicemail or something like none of that he I, just I, no he's totally lost he doesn't know what to do i'll just bury myself in my work yeah yeah but i don't know some some effort, I don't know. It's anyway. I guess. I guess they would have probably. I'm, I'm, maybe that was a deleted scene that they felt they just didn't need it in the in the final version or something. Yeah. Why did you What did you think of the film's sentimentality? I, I yeah. Again, like this is 
to make it as palatable to as wide an audience as possible, it's playing on sentimentality. And I accepted it. I thought it was fine. I, I'm not expecting uh, social realism from this. Like other films released this year, uh, other films released in 2008 do a much better job that it knows what it wants to do. Um, Departures knows what it wants to do. It wants to appeal to as many people as possible. And sentimentality is a part of that. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree. Yeah, and I think uh, I think they could have gone a little bit to less with it, and I think that would have gone hand in hand with maybe making the other characters a little bit more 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 solid, uh, more more worked on. Yeah, like it did feel like um, that moment with the cherry blossoms just before they ended with the father. That could have been an ending in itself. Having said that, it's I I was you know saying oh man. This film is too sentimental. Like, whoa, like, like they could have toned it down. At the same time, I was crying. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. despite having seen this multiple times, I was crying. As well. Yeah. So even though I am saying that this is too sentimental for me, it should it should have toned it down. I I cannot help but but shed a tear or two uh, while this film. So I think that's and I I think therein lies the popular appeal is that. It kind of had, and that's why a popular appeal in the West specifically, because it had that way of breaking down, uh, breaking down sort of like this cultural barrier. And I think that was where their choice to to get away with this religious specificities of whatever it was in the book, and make it a little bit more universal in terms of people approaching death and grieving. Yeah, but yeah, I, I mean, it works. They could have toned it down a little bit, and it's. <laughs> But yeah, look, you say they they had a specific vision in mind and they stuck to it. And I think it's not it's not my ideal treatment of the subject matter, but you cannot deny its results in terms of eliciting an emotional response. And if it sometimes you can't argue with that. Like even we we speak we often speak of melodrama as it's a negative thing, and most of the times you could always tone it down a little bit. But ultimately, if it you know if it's someone has a piece of art that is intent to elicit an emotion, if it does that successfully, you can't fault it that much. Well, yeah, it was like, uh, films of Douglas Sirk, you know, those are melodramas and they're some of the finest films ever made and it's all in service to eliciting emotions. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think it can get too much where you feel manipulated. Like the classic example is killing dogs or killing pets. Monsters. Because everybody will feel sad like that. That's a really easy way to get a to get to get people to cry. But it's not genuine. It's not real. It's manipulative, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It's not earned, in my opinion. Sometimes it's earned, and I think uh, departures really crossed that, like, towed that line. But I don't think it crossed it. I think it got very, very close. I think they could have done <laughs> it better, but I don't think they crossed that where I felt manipulated. I don't think I did. Yeah. No, it's just a really well constructed film. And it builds everything, builds everything up in stages. You know where it's going, and uh, you just enjoy it. Yes, and I think it's a, it's a, it, and it's, it's not surprising. It's a textbook film, textbook directed film, and it's not surprising that the director has not really done anything before or after this. Like as we briefly, you briefly mentioned last time that he started with pink films, right? Yeah, um, a lot of directors of that generation, well, not all, but um, many directors sort of cut their teeth in the pink film industry. Um, Ryuichi Hiroki, Takashi Ishii, um, Shusuke Kaneko, uh, even Kiyoshi Kurosawa um, directed a pink film. It was kind of like 
a good way to get into the film industry and get that uh, experience. And uh, Yojiro Takita is like a, a bit of a journeyman um, director because he's tackled all sorts of um, uh, films, uh, genres, so, so like samurai films, like When the Last Sword is Drawn, uh, like uh, uh, Shinjuku Shark, The City That Never Sleeps. Uh, Wait, and... When the Last Sword is Drawn, he did that? Yeah. I've seen that one. I'm going to look it up just to make sure I'm not wrong. Don't think so. Oh, you're right. Okay, so I take back my, I take back that I, I, I don't think he's done anything famous. He's, I've seen that film, and it's, I, I remember enjoying it. Uh, this was before Departures. Yes, yes, 2002. That's right. I, I looked up, he also had a film in the 90s, which also stars the same, um, what's her name? Uh, Ryoko Hiruse in the 90s. That, uh, that also looked interesting. Um, was it Himitsu Promise? Yes, Himitsu. I think the one where the spirit of the mother like goes into the daughter or something like that. Which is a story that's been done a number of times in Japan. Yeah. That looked interesting uh, from what I looked at. And then with The Last Sword Draws, I think a good film. Although now that I'm kind of thinking about it, it has some of the same maybe over-sentimental tones that yeah. Departures has. So I guess there's a thread in his career. But I don't think any of the films that he did after Departures, you think, you'd think his career would explode. But I don't think any of the films that he did after Departures are known. He collabor- I know that he collaborated with Joe Hisaishi one more time for his next film. Yeah, like, um, maybe, yeah, I don't think he's a- achieved the same high that he did with Departures. Yeah. He did a bunch of uh, uh, Tenchi, the Samurai Astronomer. I think that yeah. one where, uh, is also a so- uh, soundtrack by Joe Hisaishi. Hmm. But uh, other than that, I, I don't think any of the films that he's done have been particularly well received. I think his last movie, according to, I mean, he might be quite old also, but his last film was from 2018. Uh, Sakura, Guardian in the North. At, at least three films, you know, When the Last Sword is Drawn, Depar- uh, Departures, and um, Himitsu, if that is as good as the premise seems to suggest. Three films out of a, a long career. That's not a great number, a great track record, but perhaps a good, like you said, a good journeyman director, a good technical director that, if given good material, can can do an acceptable job. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard rumors about this getting remade in the West. I could imagine it getting remade in the West, but I haven't heard any rumors. I, I, it's something I, I couldn't find in the article about it, but it's something that I've seen pop up occasionally, either on Twitter or on Facebook or on these various like IndieWire site type of sites and whatever that, oh, such and such name is attached to the remake. And I don't think anything has been greenlit or anything, but it's something that I've seen talked about i don't know how i feel about it. i don't know this feels like a very japanese topic like we don't have anything similar here uh yeah the taboo surrounding death um doesn't hold as strong in the west yeah not only that but like the what's uh, like the encoffment uh like the coffin preparation the body preparation is there anything else that we have that would be comparable to that i mean uh we had the tv show six feet under yeah which i have not seen but i've heard is great I watched a few episodes. I was bored. Yeah, but I don't think that deals with the same. That's more of a general take on it. Mm. Yeah, nothing too specific to Encoffinment. Yeah. But uh, like, there's a film that's going to be uh, released soon in Japan called I Am Makimoto, um, which deals with like uh, a town hall official uh, who 
uh, essentially goes to funerals for the deceased uh, who don't have family members. And uh, it stars Sadao Abe, who we talked about in the New York yes. Asian Film Festival. Yes. And uh, it's actually a remake of a British film um, starring Eddie Marsden, uh, the name of which is called uh, Still Life from 2013. Similar subject matter. Yeah, okay. I have not seen the British film that uh, you're referring to, so I don't know. But it's it's still hard for me to imagine, although I'm, I welcome the attempt if any creative writer and director want to tackle it. I, I welcome the attempt. Yeah. So uh, anything else about the movie that you feel we haven't talked about? I think we've covered everything um, except Joe Hisaishi's music, but uh, I don't really have too much to say about it. It's kind of like what you would expect. It's heavy on the cello. Um, there are some really beautiful moments, such as when um, you're transported to like the fields of um, Yamagata Prefecture and uh, a Daigo is playing the cello as he's achieved some sort of ascendancy. I mean, beautiful music. It's, it's mostly the one theme, right? Yeah. But it's a beautiful theme. And it's, I mean, it's Joe Hisaishi. I'd say it's right if you've heard Joe Hisaishi's soundtrack before. You sort of, it's along the same line. Not, not to take anything away from it. It's still a beautiful soundtrack, but it is very much in his, in his style. Yeah. Okay. So when you gave a summary of the film, you mentioned all the awards that it's won. And this really swept the awards. And you only mentioned, you scratched the surface. Like, again, the Oscar possibly one of the highest honors that a film not in English language uh, can, uh, can achieve. It sweeped in the Japanese Academy Awards, their Oscar equivalents, uh, Asian Film Awards, Hong Kong Film Awards, a bunch of festivals, etc. So the question that we always asked, ask at the, at the end of every episode of the season is, do you think this deserves the awards and or the recognition that it's got? I, you, hmm, like there are better made films or films with much more depth. Not necessarily, uh, yeah, it's hard. I think it, like with Parasite, it's the right film at the right time and all the elements going into the film came together so wonderfully. Um, like they understood, like the filmmakers understood what they were going for and, um, they hit all their marks uh, to make a film with such broad appeal that's so well made that it probably did deserve the awards it got. So do you think it's fair to say that, that uh, or do you have anything about the fact that not that many people talk about this film as much? Uh, uh, it sort of hasn't remained on the, on the zeitgeist, but then again, like a lot of foreign films don't. Yeah, I. But, but I even think... in in discussion, so, so just to finish that thought, even in discussion of Japanese film, I think like this is not really talked about. Well, you have to differentiate between like cinephiles who are going to naturally gravitate towards Still Walking and Tokyo Sonata, and a, a general audience who are probably like they have memories of watching this, maybe even fond memories, uh, of people who are just curious. Uh, like they'll be introduced to Japanese cinema through this film. You're more engaged with that community. What have you observed? Uh, which community? The Japanese film viewing community. Oh, yeah. Like cinephiles in general. Like everybody talks about Tokyo Sonata and so um, No, I'm talking like, about departures. Departures. Yeah, it doesn't get talked about as much. Okay. What about not cinephiles? What about sort of Japanese? I mean, I'm... I think like everybody who's, everybody who's viewed it still talks about it now. It's just... Okay. Interesting. Inter and interesting. Yeah. 
it's kind of like when I when I, I like asked around friends about oh, what what's your opinion about this film, and they had all watched it at the time of release, essentially. And like talking to people in my everyday life, uh, people like even if they hadn't seen it, they had heard about it, and they were still interested about it. Yeah, and I I can see this film has a popular having a popular opinion and we talked about the right film at the right time i think maybe this was the right film at the wrong time like i mentioned at the beginning perhaps had this come a bit later when the non-cinephiles the general population to use that term it was more used to seeing foreign films as they are released either in the cinema or you know on streaming services now this was not a thing in 2008 right yeah this would have probably been a lot more popular. I don't know about in terms of recognition and awards, but at least in in terms of popularity, I think this would have this missed that opportunity. This missed the window. If this came out at maybe 2015 or maybe even today, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how this would have been received today. But a little later, when it was the infrastructure was there, I think this at least popularly, I think this would have received uh, would have made a lot more money. Just to to put it bluntly. Yeah, I agree with that assessment so to answer my own question uh does it deserve the recognition i think so because i think you know this is this is the perfect one this is a perfect gateway film a film that is a really good way to introduce someone to japanese cinema it has it has a japanese-ness to it so it's not just a film that happens to be japanese it is a film that is there is a japanese dna to it but it's also a very good, accessible, enjoyable film. Uh, and that's why I almost wish it had been released later so he'd have gotten that popular appeal so he was more uh, talked about in the consciousness of those who do not necessarily would watch a Japanese film on a regular basis. Maybe it would pop up more often in someone's Netflix queue or something like that. Yeah. Where it's not, it's not there now. It doesn't, it doesn't have quite that effect. Yeah. It terms now the second part of the question: Does it deserve the awards? I don't know. I, I would say probably not. There are better Japanese film that came out that films that came out this year, better Asian films that came out this year. But sticking in Japan, that we have Tokyo Sonata, which I think is probably my favorite film of that year, one of my favorite films of that year. There is uh, the uh, what I'm blanking on the other one that we just talked about. Uh, still walking, still walking. Which I've I've admitted I'm not the biggest Koreda film, but again, he's a he makes masterpieces. He's a master of his craft, and still walking is uh, has a lot more depth to it. Has a lot more character. Has a lot more sent uh, not sentimentality, but sort of like sort of meaningful relationship between the characters. Uh, there's that, and even if we specifically go to the Oscars, I think there were better films that year. I think so. I haven't seen every category, but there were. So this was nominated alongside um, the Bader Mainhof Complex, which is a German film directed by Uli Edel, who I think passed away recently. I think he did. I'm not sure. Uh, but so I thought that uh, that is that's a sort of a historical drama about a a terrorist group in in the 70s Germany. Yeah, my mother's got a book about it. <laughs> Yes, so so th- I thought that was a better film, and there's also Waltz with Bashir, which is an animated film about the uh, Israeli about occupation of Lebanon. Was it Israeli Lebanon War of the late '80s, early '90s? And it's a specifically about a specific massacre that took place uh, hmm. from Leb- Lebanon generals that Israel uh, 
reportedly took a uh, a blind eye, showed a blind eye. So they're not necessarily directly responsible, but they didn't do enough to stop it. And he talks yeah. about it's about this sort of like collective amnesia that the, the every soldier who fought in that war sort of um, uh, sort of experienced. And that is a fantastic film. It's one also one of my favorite films of that year. And it's an animated, very interesting style of animation. It's a documentary. It's an animated documentary. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great film. And I think both of those films, I haven't seen The Class, which is a, a French film. I haven't seen Revanche, which is an Austrian film. Haven't heard anything about them. Maybe they're good. Maybe they're not. Who knows? But those two, Waltz with Bashir or the Batter Meinhof complex, Meinhof complex, either of those, I think, deserve to win that award over Departures. And again, Departures is a great film. Very fun to watch. Despite all my complaints, I was in tears for most of it. Uh, that's how that's how good it is at what it at what it's trying to do. But yeah. I think on an on a deeper level, it just isn't there. Yeah, yeah, I would have, I would have preferred Tokyo Sonata, Still Walking, or All Around Us. Um, but you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. I suppose, <laughs> like the guys behind Departures knew what they were making and they executed it perfectly. Yes, uh, German, and again, even even Oscars, I don't think it deserved it. Maybe I'm still happy to see Japan represented for the first time. Germany for the with a batter Meinhof complex. Germany wins it all the time. Who cares? And Israel, Israel, okay, they they probably could could have could use the representation, but I'm not a, as much a fan of Israeli cinema as I am of uh, Japanese cinema, just my my preference. So I'm happy to see Japan represented in that category. But if I am to be honest, if I am to be objective, I think I don't think it quite deserved that. Oh, it's a shame the uh, other films had tougher subject matter or exactly, different ways exactly. of approaching it. Exactly. Okay, then, uh, this was, uh, I think uh, this is it for our discussion for the film Departures. Uh, we've decided that for next episode, we're going back to South Korea and we're talking about the 2008 film Burning. Um, 2018? 2018 film Burning. Thank you, Jason. All right, so anything else, Jason, before we close the episode? Yeah, uh, I'd like to thank uh, the listeners uh, and uh, hope. Uh, they get the chance to see departures, and uh, I hope uh, they get in contact with us to give us uh, their thoughts on the film. And uh, yeah, keep watching Asian films. Uh, thank you for the discussion, John. Absolutely, thank you, Jason. Uh, and like you said, if anybody has any comments, questions, suggestions, concerns, please let us know at heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com, or you can tweet us at heroic-purgatory all uh, in one word on Twitter. Other than that, we'll see you next time.